Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Nehemiah 3. And the last time we were in Nehemiah 2, which, you know, I got some good feedback, and uh, it's amazing how a book written 2,500 years ago can give applications for today. Uh, some came to me, and, and they just kind of talked about the feedback they were blessed with uh, as Christians in the workplace or Christians in the world. So you can see some really awesome parallel. God's precepts are God's precepts whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, his people are his people. So the things that he enjoys, things that he wants to see in us, uh, it's pretty much pandemic through the entirety of Scripture. Today we're going to be in Nehemiah 3, and uh, you know, there's this wall-building project that's going on, and it's a big project. I'm actually going to show you at some point an image of an aerial photo, not a photograph, but a sketch of what the walls of Jerusalem uh, looked like back then, there's still remnants of the walls in Jerusalem. You've got the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, part of the Broad Wall. There's a lot of the stones. If you go to the Holy Land, you can see that they're you know, over into the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley in Hinnom. Uh, so it's, it's pretty amazing how history is still evident in the Holy Land. But Nehemiah, let's go back some 2,500 years, the 5th century B.C., He's basically in the Persian kingdom. He's a cupbearer. He's probably never seen Jerusalem. He's a, a Jew who's grown up in this foreign kingdom. He's in the king's court, and he really wants to uh, bless God. You know, his holy city is a mess. You know, the walls and the gates are smashed, and there's rubble everywhere. And, and he has this burden in his heart to rebuild the city of God, the walls and the gates. So um, one of the things I said, I kind of did a monologue as if I was Nehemiah, and the first thing, if he would have said, hey, you know, this is a big project, the first question is, could I get volunteers? And as I said before, if the answer was no, if he couldn't get any volunteers, there would be no book of Nehemiah. It would be the end. But a lot of people had stepped up, and God did stir their hearts to help him out. So this is what's going on. And, you know, it, it's really like that in any work of God, in any real ministry. Uh, even in a church, you know, it's not one person or one group of people that should get credit or accolades. Hey, we built this. We did this. You know, in this church, we look for as much help as possible, even if it's a small commitment. Uh, so the title of today's message is The Work of Ministry is for All, because it is for everyone. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I like to group those together. The Apostle Paul talks about the church as a body of Christ and how the body of Christ does come together and God is blessed when they do a work of God, when they glorify his name, all right? So, basically, we're going to look at this building project, and we're going to make an application to today. You know, and, and even if you look around and you look in, in our area, um, there's some churches that end up in decline or end up shutting down because of apathy, uh, because there is, you know, there's a lot of finger pointers or critics, but nobody really wants to come together to help. So especially in a small or medium-sized church, coming together and doing ministry together, a high service rate is necessary because in a larger church, you may have levels of redundancy that you don't have in a smaller church. So we'll look at how everything kind of comes to together. Verse 1. Okay, in Nehemiah 3, 
verse 1. It says, Then Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the tower of Hananiel. Next to Eliashab, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. So there's a purpose in the work of ministry. It's to glorify God and also to further his precepts. Okay, and when we do ministry, we find that we do further these things, these concepts, these precepts, these ideas. Uh, and we can do that in our local sphere of influence. And we don't have to be a part of this wall building project. We could just do it in our own in lives and how God has used us with others. I'm amazed that Jesus said in John 17, 4, just prior to his crucifixion, he says to the Father, quote, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. You know, today in our society, work has become a dirty word. And, and I think it's part of the de degrading of our culture. You know, work is a good thing. Today, people want stuff for nothing. Um, and that's it's a frightening uh, concept. It's a frightening understanding. Because somebody has to work. Somebody's got to make the money. Somebody's got to pay the taxes. Um, so back then or today, work is still important, especially for a man, uh, a feeling of accomplishment. Hey, I was part of that. Hey, I did that, you know, to look back. So what I'm going to do today is twofold. Number one, look at the 51 named persons and groups. And I'm not going to go into any real detail in a lot of these, but I just want to pull out some things from these groups uh, to help you understand what's going on at the time. And number two, to give you a visual of the project, you know, what's going on in Jerusalem. Now, I think what's amazing as well is that, and I've talked to you about the Elephantine papyri and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these big names for these old manuscripts. Uh, some of them were documents from governments. So actually, Nehemiah 3, part of what he did in recording this is because, remember, he's an agent of the Persian kingdom. <laughs> Pretty amazing. So the Bible is not only God's word, but it's also the annals of government projects. Uh, it's history and it's memoirs of leaders all wrapped into one. Okay? And that's why I like to bring, I'm really a fan of history because I like to bring in, you know, history into this to see the Bible is not isolated from history. It is history. Right? It's important that we understand it, especially when you're being attacked for what you believe. Know why, why you, what you believe is why you believe. You know, the high priest and the brethren built the sheep gate. If we could put up image one, and we'll leave that up. So you can see a basic, again, this is what we would consider an aerial view. And over here is, you look at this, and these are thousands of linear feet, also thousands of square feet of this wall with gates, with little breaches and gates where people and animals could come in and out. Now, only some of this still exists after the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. But you have here is the Valley of Hinnom, the Kidron Valley, right? I said the Valley of Jezreel before. That was my mistake. I meant the Kidron Valley. Uh, and you see these, this wall. And here's the temple. Okay, by this time, the temple's still standing. If you go there now, on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock, Islam's site. But the temple has been, again, destroyed since since the Roman Empire. But the first thing that we're going to see is the Sheep Gate, which is just north of the temple when it stood. And we look at this, and, you know, the high priests could have said, and they had every right to say, I'm not getting my hands dirty. 
You know, God wants me to wash my hands. I'm supposed to handle the sacrifices, you know. The high priest was the highest spiritual authority in the whole of God's people. He could have said, and we hear this today. You might hear it today. It's not my job, man. I mean, it's actually kind of funny. Not my job. It's that kind of attitude that it doesn't fall within my job description, so I'm not going to do it. Well, what if the high priest had that attitude? Remember, the Bible mentions him first, lead by example. And then you see everybody else kind of jumping into it. And this was great. You know, it's something uh, after God's own heart. But they used their hands that they did the sacrifices with, and they washed it and purified with it. They used it to do physical labor. So this, this was a good thing. And they consecrated. They blessed their work after they were done. So the sheep gate, which is north of the temple, is where the animals would be brought in and out. And they had very simple terms, sheep gate. Okay, well, the sheep go through there. Sheep, lambs, uh, sacrifices for the temple, etc. And we're going to see, too, that as we go forward, he speaks about hanging the doors. Um, you know, you would have this mostly stone masonry edifice, and then you would have these breaches. Then you'd have usually wood or some type of material that would be on a, a primitive type of hinge, and they were gates, or they would lift up, or they would open up. But then they would be able to be locked up at night to keep out foreign invaders. And it's funny because, you know, we have this discussion today. I was, you know, I go off on all these tangents and I'm thinking about this and I actually found, uh, it's called the dailymail.com. It says, quote, a third, think about this, how many this is, a third of the world's countries have completed or are building barriers or some type of wall. Even the Vatican has partial walls, armed guards and metal detectors to protect Vatican City. So. Is the Bible relevant today? Sure it is, because has mankind really changed? Not really, you know, 2,500 years, we can still make these applications. Verse three, it says, also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. So you have the Tekoites, who are about 12 miles from Jerusalem. You know, they want to help out. But the nobles are the only ones here mentioned disfavorably or dishonorably. They didn't put their shoulders into the work. In other words, they felt that this was beneath them. You know, the Apostle Paul made tents in the Greco-Roman world. And the Greek, the Greco-Roman world, looked at physical labor as something that was beneath them. They would make sure their kids or they would get a good education so they would have the, the laborers or the slaves do the physical work. But Paul, it's amazing how as Christians, we're not supposed to go along with the culture. We're supposed to push against the culture. You know, we're supposed to be that preserving influence. Paul did physical labor. He made tents. Um, and he did it honorably. But I think what's worse is when this attitude is in the church. Remember, Jesus got down, you know, he, he dealt with people. Um, he, he was in there. He used his hands. Uh, the apostle Paul did. Who are we to say that we're better than they were? We're not. Uh, today, I see some glamorous ministries, and, you know, they're too pretty. They're too dainty. They don't want to ruin their mani-pedis to get dirty. You know what I'm saying? And I'm talking about the men. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, people don't, they hear this and it rubs them the wrong way, but it is God's word. Everybody got together except for the nobles. Now, let's go, let's continue through here. 
Uh, let's look here over at the fish gate. So here's the sheep gate, here's the fish gate. The fish gate was situated near the Mediterranean and what would happen was the merchants would come in and bring their catch of fish. They would bring the food. That was the way they did it. And this is just the way they did it. Everybody had a gate for a specific purpose, okay? Verse six, moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah and Meshulam, the son of Besodia, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river, or the Euphrates. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. There's a perfumer making repairs. What is a perfumer known about? A goldsmith. There's no gold on that gate, on that wall. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, made repairs in front of his house. Next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabniah made repairs. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made the repairs. Now, I talked about the perfumers, the goldsmiths. You know, remember the first uh, chapter in Nehemiah was unqualified, yet achieving great things. Nehemiah was not qualified to do this, and the perfumers were not qualified to do this. They were really the goldsmiths. They did a lot of delicate work. However, because their heart was right, God, listen, if your heart is right, you can do anything. You know, it's, it's not my job, or it's, it's not my thing, or I'm not good at it. I love when God takes people, including me, <laughs> who doesn't know what they're doing, not sure of themselves, and he uses them to do great things. So you see a bunch of group of people and you wonder, what are they doing repairing this? You know, these blocks were heavy. There was stones that were the Romans had knocked down and they had to heave ho and lift them up and do mason work. And, you know, I remember when I was in college, I had all these odd jobs. And I remember building a wall. <laughs> I mean, you got to pour a footing and then you got to put the block down and you got the mortar and, and you know, you, you don't want it to be sloppy. I had to move it in three different dimensions. The cornerstone was very important before you built the rest of that. I'll tell you why, you see a, a wall uh, and they start out making, oh, it's just an inch off, you know, right? <laughs> you keep going uh, further down and the thing gets all squirrely and you look down the side of you like, who built this thing? You know what I'm saying? Look at the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But, uh, <laughs> but this was very important work. Uh, this was something you couldn't mess around with and they did it. And they used, listen, today we get block from, you know, whatever, one of these home places, and the block are perfect. Back then, you had stones that were all different sizes and shapes, and that made it, it made it even more challenging. So this was not easy work. But we find that Shalom's daughters also helped. Now, this wasn't common in that society. People make the mistake and say the Bible, um, you know, doesn't have a favorable view of women. no society, some of these societies didn't have a favorable view of women, but the Bible elevated them. You know, this is God's word. And these daughters, these young ladies were part of this project. They had something to do. You know, women who were prophetesses, deaconesses, warriors, judges, otherwise great leaders and contributors are all throughout the scripture, Old and New Testament. Um, and I tell you what, we try to follow that example. 
You know, here at Calvary Crossfields, we have uh, two teenage girls, Alyssa and Samantha, and they wear the blue usher shirt, and they, they usher with us. They do a great job. Sometimes I see them giggling through the hallway, but they do their work, you know what I'm saying? I don't know what they're giggling about, and I don't ask, but, uh, you know, they do a fantastic job. So, you know, we try to take that mentality here as, as well. Well, we don't have that misogynistic or weird kind of view uh, we have the view that the Bible has, you know what I'm saying? You want to do it? We'll, we'll give you something to do. So in God's ministry, there's, there's something for everyone. Nobody's left out. Now, I wonder if the nobles regretted this. I wonder if they looked back on this and said, you know, we probably should have. You ever, you ever, listen, we're all sinners. You ever see a bunch of people getting together, doing something, and you just, you just don't want to do it? Maybe you don't like the people that that are part of the group, or maybe you're just not in a good mood, or maybe you're just too busy. And then you kind of see them doing it, and you say, man, I should have said yes. I mean, come on, we've all been there, all right? But the nobles were the only ones who didn't do it. They didn't get to be a part of this, and I wonder if they later regretted it. I want to read to you a portion of Scripture. Actually, not a Scripture, excuse me. Warren Wearsby in his commentary, Be Determined on Nehemiah, a few sentences here, page 45. He said, British humorist Jerome K. Jerome said, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. <laughs> he says, but when it comes to the work of the Lord, there's no place for spectators or self-appointed advisors and critics, but there's always room for workers. As you study this chapter, you will discover principles that apply to all human labor, especially the work of building the church. And he goes on, page 47, D.L. Moody. A great many people have a false idea about the church, said evangelist D.L. Moody. They have got an idea that the church is a place to rest in, to get into a nicely cushioned pew and contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy is all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their minds. And sometimes I preach a message like this, and very rarely, but somebody will get mad at me. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Skip the chapter? Come on, give me a break. You know what I'm saying? I try to be as passive as much as I can. But, you know, <laughs> the thing is, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, then do something about it. It's, it's, not, it's not for me to go around pulling people and poking them and asking them what they're doing. with. That's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to say, you know, this is you, it's your time. It's your turn. Let's go. Let's see what you can do. All right? There's work to do. But there's a key phrase throughout this chapter we'll see that a person, quote, repaired another section. And this is amazing because somebody would get done and their attitude was, what else can I do? That's a blessing. What else can I do? Like they're just, you ever, you ever see somebody, they're just so excited for the Lord that they just they can't get enough, you know? Um, I remember, as a, especially as a new Christian, and, and I study the Bible, so, you know, I'm always in the Word, but I remember even as a new Christian, I, I just go into church in a Bible-believing church and, you know, oh, you have a Wednesday night too? At the time, it was Thursday. So I'm learning about God Sunday and Thursday. Oh, you guys have an event? I've got to check that out. You just have this desire to fit the things of God in your schedule because you're just so excited about him. He's God after all. I mean, you know, people get excited about celebrities and stand outside and do, do, go down the block and wait overnight for some celebrity who's going to be at some concert. But this is God we're talking about. 
I mean, he blows any celebrity away. Think about it. Hollywood or music or some type of band, whatever. And sometimes we take God for granted. But the next gate, as we continue counterclockwise, is the old gate. All right? So probably one of the earlier gates that were made. Verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate, or the dung gate, or the feces gate. Well, we'll talk about that. Remember, it was a city. Stuff got, stuff happened, and you had to remove stuff, and they didn't have the plumbing like we have today. So verse 14, you know, <laughs> I love when people say, oh, the Bible is a bunch of stories. There's so much detail in this. It even tells you the inner workings of the city before modern technology and what they did. And no doubt that Nehemiah probably had to take, again, it's God's word. He wrote it down. And no doubt he had to make a copy for the king, right, for Artaxerxes. Because Artaxerxes funded this. I don't know how much money he spent on this project. He wanted a little bang for his buck. Now, I'm, I'm speculating here, but no doubt Nehemiah took this stuff and said, sent it back to the king. So he could look at it and go, oh, you guys did all that? Oh, okay, I'm getting a lot for my money. You're not all sitting around looking at the bricks thinking that they're going to go up by themselves. So check this out. It's, it's, to me, it's powerful. It's very detailed. Uh, Malchajah, the son of Rehab, leader of the district of Beth Hasarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalom and the son of Kol Hosea, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shalah, or Shaloah, by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Bethzer, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. So, no, verse 17 is interesting because now the Levites, uh, and I don't know what order this was done in, but the Levites were, were helping out too. They were putting their shoulders into the work. And the Levites were helpers to the priests. What the Levites also did was they went throughout Israel and they would teach God's word. They'd make sure the children of Israel and their children understood the law. They were the teachers, uh, but they still helped. They still set an example. You know, I see newer ministries, and, and I don't criticize it, but they have a name for each type of pastor. This is the teaching pastor. Well, as long as the teaching pastor doesn't look at the bottle on the lawn and says, well, that's the deacon's job. See, the teaching pastor also needs to be the pastor that picks stuff up, picks up garbage. You know, we all do everything. And I'm just blessed because... And we, I would consider ourselves, actually, if you look at the statistics, a uh, small church is 75 people. So we're more and more towards the medium size. But, you know, everybody has the mentality here that we all have to pitch in. I mean, yesterday's barbecue was a great example. All the tents were up and barbecue grills and it was hundreds of chairs and tables and some tables and stuff. And, and there was a system. And when you've got like 15, 20 people helping... It gets done in like 15, 20 minutes. I mean, everybody pitched in and helped. Uh, and that's the way it has to be. Because in a smaller church, if you don't, nothing gets done. And then stuff sits outside and garbage collects and you got all kinds of problems. So it, it's an amazing thing when everybody comes to, it's, it's great. It's a perfect timing 
for what we just did yesterday. All right, we have two more gates to look at, the valley gate and the refuse gate, which as we go around counterclockwise, the valley of Hinnom and the dung gate or the refuse gate. So here's the valleys, okay? This is where waste, animal waste, human waste, garbage. You open up the gate, it goes into the valley. When it piles up to a certain point, they light it on fire, and that's how they burnt their, their trash and their refuse, okay? And, and that's basically... You know, that's the logistics in, a, in an old city. Then you have the fountain gate and the water gate, not to be confused with the Nixon era, you know, the water <laughs> gate, okay? Um, that didn't happen yet. The water gate, we'll actually see, doesn't happen until verse 26, but this is neat because over here, right, and you can't see it, but right in this area, there was a, a spring of Gihon. Remember, no plumbing. So fresh water would come in through that, that spring of Gihon and it would collect in the pool of Siloam. You've, some of you are saying, oh, pool, I know that. It's the pool of Siloam. Yes, John chapter 9, that's where Jesus healed the blind man. So everything's starting to come into place. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all starting to come together. Verse 18. Verse 18. He says, he continues... After him, the brethren under Bavai, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kilia, made repairs. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. Got to protect the city, need an armory. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, diligently repaired the other section from the buttress to the door to the house of Eliashab, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Arijah, the son of Kaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashab to the end of the house of Eliashab. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. So notice the priests. You had the high priest and his brethren, probably his biological brothers. We saw that initially. We saw the Levites. Now we have the other priests that were not the high priest. There was only one high priest. They also made repairs. Right? They, they, everybody pitched in to get involved. You know, my grandparents used to have all these old sayings, and if stuff wasn't getting done, they would say, you know, people sitting around, my grandparents would say, too many, too many chiefs, not enough braves. I'm sure you might have heard that as a kid. Everybody can't be the chief, but even the chiefs need to come together and help out when something needs to get done. Verse 20, Baruch, it says, worked diligently, earnestly, or zealously. Sometimes there's a different work ethic, you know, and, and honestly, as Christians, we should never do anything because of guilt. Oh, I, I feel so guilty. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is good, but guilt that, that drives us to do kooky things, that's really not scriptural. And they'll say, well, I'm, I have to volunteer because I feel so guilty. But then what happens is there's a different work ethic, all right? I'm getting paid at my job, good money, overtime, ooh, more money, holiday pay, right? And here I'm volunteering. Let me just do what I need to do, and i got to run home now. Baruch, didn't, I'm sure they weren't getting paid for this. Um, it would, in addition to all the materials and all the stuff that had to get done, there's no indication that they were getting financially compensated. But Baruch was joyful about serving the Lord. He was joyful about doing this type of work. And I think it's safe to say that the wall building, unlike today, was not a union job with its benefits and pensions. You know, they did it with the spare time that they had to try to, you know, make this nice for the Lord, right? It, it was a reflection of, of him. Verse 23. 
continues, after him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. So now there's something that's interesting happening. I'm going to touch on that. Um, the wall's getting built, and, and now people's own houses within that situation, they're cleaning up as well. And we'll look at that. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinadad, made rep another, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the butchers, even as far as the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate towards the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. In front of their dwelling. So God repairing the, the city of God, so to speak, his favored city and where he wanted the temple and sacrifices and spirituality to be centered before the New Testament and the indwelling uh, uh, sealing of the Holy Spirit that we have now as believers. Like Pastor Vinny said on Wednesday, he talked about our bodies, we, we, wherever we go, wherever we are, God's with us. He's sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Different dispensation, but let's go, you know, we're in the Old Testament now, so let's the, the temple was a type of that Holy Spirit and dwelling that we have as believers. But what was very interesting was as the people repaired the walls and took pride in the work that they were doing for God, they felt inspired now to take care of their own homes. Now, there was a situation where, especially back then, without an air force and, and you know, modern warfare, uh, with the wall down, people would come and plunder. They would come and attack. They would rob them. They would sometimes murder. So the people's, their spirits were kind of deflated. And the condition of even in front of their homes was, was a reflection of how they felt. But when God's house and God's wall was being repaired, because the, the house, the temple was done first, there was a spillover effect that the people started now taking care of their property. And even as Christians, you know, it says something that if our church is clean, for visitors. It says something if, the, if our homes, you know, it doesn't mean we have to be neat freaks, but to, to, to care for what we have, to care for what is God has given us. Now, the word pride is, is, in Christianity is not a good word, but just for an expression to take pride in what we have. You know, well, God bless me with this. God bless me with my home. I try to do as much as I can to take care of what God has given me. But so you see this, this uh, reflective principle between God's property and the people's property, okay? Verse 26, the Nephanim, not to be confused with the Nephilim, different Hebrew word in Genesis 6, the Nephanim were temple servants. Again, more of the servants, more hands on deck. Okay, that's in verse 26. Verse 28, the horse gate, okay, the horse gate. So as we're going around, here's the horse gate. Now the horse gate needed to be near the temple because Solomon started this thing with the horses. Um, back in the day, they were like the tanks. Uh, if you were on a horse and you had armor and your opponent didn't, you were probably going to win the battle. 
Solomon took it to a new high, uh, and he imported all these horses. They were probably very large war horses. And the horse gate, obviously, you don't want the horses going in and out with the goats and the chickens. You could see how accidents could happen. So the horse gate was for the horses to go in and out of. It was part of the defense system. And then the east gate, or the golden gate, I actually, <laughs> I, looked up, I, I looked up Golden Gate Bridge. I'm like, does this have any? No, it had no significance. So don't confuse yourself with the bridge in California. But verse 9, the Golden Gate, um, it's up here, right here, right? The East Gate or the Golden Gate. This is very interesting because Ezekiel the prophet, when the sins of the people and the priests, so it wasn't just God's people that were sinning, but it was the leadership and it was horrible. They were into idolatry, prostitution. It was insane. And God had to say enough is enough. So Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel chapters 10, 11, and 43, he saw, remember God dwelled here, his Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies in the temple. He saw actually God's glory in his visions depart out the east gate, like God's leaving us. That must have been scary. And when the people read that, yeah, we got to repent. We, we want God's presence back here. The east gate is probably where Jesus entered, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Amazing. Check this out. You got to read this for yourself. Haggai 2, 6 through 9, Jesus fulfilled this obscure Old Testament prophecy in Haggai where the desire of all nations, the, the, the glory of God would re-enter the temple. Now, they didn't see the, the way Ezekiel saw him leaving. They didn't see the way they saw God's manifestation rest, you know, when they were traveling through the wilderness and then, and then rise, and then they would follow him, his, this glory, but kind of veiled. They saw God's glory return in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Haggai 2, 6 through 9, right? So God leaves in Messiah, God's presence leaves in Ezekiel's time. He comes back embodied in the form of Jesus Christ, presenting himself to be the Messiah and later dying for our sins. Fascinating. Fascinating. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, the gate of Mifkad, or the inspection gate, is over here. So here's the horses come in. They probably had some stables. The Mifkad gate was where, where the troops would muster. It was called the muster gate where the uh, army officers would take roll call and inspect. You have your sword, you have your gear. You know, hey, where's, where's Officer Johnson? Where did he go? Somebody go find him. Get him out of here. He's late for, for roll call or muster. Let me go back to the East Gate or the Golden Gate. Sometimes those outside of the faith put, I don't know how to say this, put believers to shame with how much they believe. In the 1500s, when the Ottoman Turks the Muslim hordes took control of Jerusalem. They understood Judeo-Christian eschatology, means the understanding of end times, the Messiah and stuff. This should give you chills. They knew that the Messiah was going to, you know, in, in the Lord's second coming, Jesus probably is going to return in his second coming through this gate. This is the, the gate he entered before. So what the Ottoman Turks did was, where the breach was in the wall, they removed the gate. They got mortar and blocks and blocked up that gate completely. They didn't want the Judeo-Christian Messiah to come back because they wanted to retain control of Jerusalem. It freaked them out so much that they actually, right in front of the, this is all history, you can, call, he, he's crazy, he can't be. Go home, look up history, look at the East Gate, look at what happened in the, that's why I love history, because it just confirms so many things. In addition to blocking up the gate, 
they made themselves a makeshift cemetery. They started burying the, their dead there. Uh, surely no Messiah would, well, if, if he can get through that blocked wall, I bet he won't step over dead bodies and defile himself to get into the East Gate. Isn't that fascinating? But Jesus could go up to a dead person who could have defiled him and he could touch him. The defilement wouldn't come through him, but his glory of God came through, through himself to the dead person and brought him back to life or her, right? We see three references of, of resurrections that Jesus did, and probably there was dozens more that just aren't reflected in the scripture. John 21 tells us so, Jesus did so much, there's no way he could have put all that information in the books that we have. So they took selective works and put it in. Isn't that amazing? I, I get chills when I think about that. Verse 31, last few verses. After him, Malshajah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nephinim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate, the inspection, recruiting gate, and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So we see a lot of people involved here. You got the priests, the Levites, perfumers, men, women, the daughters, children, craftsmen, goldsmiths, even foreigners. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing to see. And I got to tell you, well, what's the application? Well, I, I look at that when, when we look at what's going on in this church. You know, we have even teens. You know, anybody wants to be involved. We have teens who have done worship ministry. They do teen ministry. They do skits. They usher. They watch the children. Again, whatever you want to do will fit you in. You know, spend some time. What are your gifts? What are your talents? Do you want to be challenged? What do you want to do? So this is an awesome look at the work of ministry is for all because everyone is a part of it. Now, let's go back to the last gate. And I don't think it's by mistake that it's said. So if you go counterclockwise, okay, we're back at the sheep gate. Now remember, they would use in the sacrifices either a sheep, right, or a lamb, a goat, a lamb. Um, and basically, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One of the most important things or one of the most important uh, events that took place in the temple was the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. So it's no uh, accident that the sheep gate is mentioned first and then the sheep gate is mentioned last, okay? Because it's really the most important. Let's look at everything in, in the, the reference of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can be in any Old Testament book and we can find the gospel of Jesus Christ in any Old Testament book. So out today's message is the work of ministry is for all. In Nehemiah's time, I said, number one, that if he felt he could not get any volunteers, there'd be no book of Nehemiah. Okay, let's go on. Say he's got 100, 200 volunteers. Let's say they all clamored and argue. Well, I want to do this work. Well, I'm good at that. Well, I want to do the easier job. Well, I want to do the glamorous work. Again, there would be no book of Nehemiah. The correct, res correct response was, where do you need me to help? Right? And we see this. It's no different today. If we look at 1 Corinthians 12, and let me just talk about how the Apostle Paul looks at a human body, and then he looks at the body of Christ, and he makes this analogy, and I, I put a few verses, kind of put them together. He says, the body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. God has set the members, each one of them, in the body as he pleased. And if the body were all one member, 
where would the body be? And the Apostle Paul says, if everybody was an eye, oh, the eye, it's such a glamorous part of the body. If, if we were one big eye, how many things could we not do, okay? Uh, so somebody has to be a foot, an ankle, a pinky, whatever the case may be. But where would the body be if everyone were all one member? Now, indeed, there are many members but one body. He says to the church, he goes, you are the body of Christ, but members individually. Right? You're individual members, but you also make up the body of Christ. And when you do and you work together, it glorifies God. And he talks extensively about that. So whether it's Nehemiah in B.C. or um, the New Testament or Calvary Crossfields A.D., it's the same thing. The work of ministry is for all. And really, we're left to pray with, how do I fit in in God's ministry? Let's pray. You've been listening to to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.